Today's scripture reading is Matthew 25, 34 through 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter you who are blessed by my father. Take what is coming to you in this kingdom. It has been ready for you since the world's foundation. And here's why. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick, and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. Thanks, Braden. Will you open your Bibles, please, church, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. In our Going Deeper classes on Wednesday night, we um, try to take Sunday's message and explore the implications of it together in, in small table talk groups, and we have a lot of fun. And I asked a question this last week that I want to ask you. See, Luke 15, as we studied last week, helps us see the strong emotions God has about lost things. And that emotion hits a nerve with us because we know what it's like to search for something valuable that's lost, even to the neglect, maybe sometimes, of things that are unlost. We know that feeling well. And so I want to ask you the question, and here it is. It's up on the screen. Have you ever been looking for something of great value, and it seemed like you were the only one who cared that it was lost? God knows how that feels every single day. I may have hurt your feelings a couple of days ago like Jesus hurt the Pharisees a couple of centuries ago. But I wanted to make it clear last Sunday that God is more concerned about the multitudes that are lost and disconnected from him than those who are found and close to him. That's not just my concern. It shouts at us from Luke chapter 15. And the implications for us as we're trying to be filled with his spirit, and that's one of our aims, primary aims for the church this year, is that if his spirit is in us that cares that much for those that are disconnected and lost, surely that's going to be seen in our lives, that that's going to be part of that light that we let shine into a dark world. Now, in last week's message, I mentioned the continuing refugee crisis that's going on now in its fifth year. There, the gun worked. Fifth year. It was hard for me to look up the facts about this and see that that's true. This is the greatest humanitarian crisis that has been a part of my life and probably a part of any of our lives since World War II. Literally, millions upon millions of not just Muslim refugees, but also Christian refugees are without a home. And they're not sure that they'll ever have one to call home again. I know you have heard CBS in regards to the refugee crisis. I know you've heard of NBC. And I know you've heard Fox in regards to all things refugee. But what I'm curious about is have you heard G-O-D about what he has to say about refugees? I'd like for us to do that this morning. Whatever your opinion about whether we ought to open our country up to offer those who've lost everything, we need to hear from God who has given us everything. Dr. David Platt shared some scriptures with me at a lecture at Southwest Baptist Seminary that absolutely wrecked my week not too long ago. And it's part of the reason why we've shifted this series and are postponing one more week, the Home Depot series, the banner of which you see behind us. 
The global refugee crisis truly is a crisis of unprecedented proportion. 60, listen to the word, 60 million people have been directly displaced, put in danger, or forced from their homes. Syria alone is a nation of a population of about 22 million people. Half of them, half of them have been displaced or killed. Over 6 million of them fleeing to neighboring countries for safety. The numbers are so enormous, it sounds like they're being made up. And I'm sure God wishes they were. Over the last year and a half, it is my fear that most people in our churches, and many even in this room, have been paying little or no attention at all to this crisis. I'm going to say this publicly. I haven't. I haven't. And if we have paid attention to it, we've looked at it through the lenses of so-called political experts, and I'm not saying that's all bad. But in most cases, it is a very limited, very biased view. And there have, over the course of months now, been endless debates about whether or not we ought to offer asylum to the refugees of, of any country now. My concern is that far too many of those debates have at stake our fears and our comforts, not what the Father has to say. And what our culture decides to do about that crisis really doesn't matter to me much. What our president decides to do about the crisis really doesn't matter to me much. What God thinks we ought to do about this crisis matters everything. Because faith in these matters must drive whatever we decide to do, not fear. It must. The church has to be concerned more for fulfilling the Great Commission than it is preserving a great life. And I mean that. I want to invite you this morning to open your hearts. I want to invite you this morning to open your minds to the Word of God, not Jimmy's opinion, but the Word of God on this crisis. And as the Spirit moves, not fear, as the Spirit moves, not politics, but as the Spirit moves, may you move. So how does God relate to the refugee? How does God respond to the refugee? What's his view of this refugee crisis? I want to point us to four biblical truths this morning concerning the refugees and look at four takeaways at how we might move on these truths. In front of a crowd who had little or no concern for Jehovah in Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, Paul stands to share Christ with them. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human needs as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this. Let me say it again. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. Pray with me, church. Father, we join other disciples in this community and literally around the globe in humbly asking, what do we do? What do we do with this crisis that's not going away anytime soon, that's going to be with us for years? I know Victory Baptist is trying to figure it out. I know other churches in our community are trying to figure this out. So would you please be with them? 
Would you please speak to them and through them about how we can be light in this dark crisis that has become a part of all of our lives in some small ways even, but some large ways in others. Please lead us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First biblical truth Jeff has alluded to this morning in our song service, and that is that God reigns sovereign over all things. We've got to start there. No matter what's going on in the world, we need to remember that God is sovereign over all of it. When as a church two years ago, we went through the greatest story ever told in 31 weeks. We saw that in the scriptures from beginning to end, very simply, God is Lord over it all. He's sovereign over nature. The wind blows at his bidding. The sun shines at his bidding. Isaiah says this, the stars appear in the sky because our God brings them out one by one. And he calls each by name. By his great power and mighty strength, not one goes missing. Brother, there is not a speck of dust. There is not a feather on a bird. There is not an iota of anything on this planet, around this planet, in this universe that escapes our God's sovereignty. And that blows me away. Number two, God is not only sovereign over nature, he's sovereign over nations. Our God charts the course of countries, we read a few moments ago. He holds the rulers of this earth literally in the palm of his hand, the Bible says. And I, want, I don't know how you think that truth hits you, but it hits me as really good news. Because I'm glad Assad in Syria is not Lord over all. I'm glad that Vladimir Putin in Russia is not Lord over all. I'm glad that Kim Jong-un and Ben, how do you say this, Benjamin Netanyahu? <laughs> Close. I practiced it probably ten times and I still didn't get it right. I'm glad he's not Lord over all. I'm glad our President Donald Trump is not Lord over all. Our God's Lord over all. He's Lord over all, the scripture says. He's sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign also over, and I, had, I needed to be reminded of this this week, suffering. Suffering. In the book of Job, God is called almighty 31 different times. 31 different times. Job's story is told in such a way that makes it clear God is sovereign over everything. Satan is sovereign over, hear me clearly, nothing. Job 1 makes it clear the accuser appears before God with limited ability. He must be allowed by God to afflict Job. And in all the mystery that shrouds that scene, one conclusion is clear. The power of Satan is limited to the prerogative of our great God. Satan cannot do anything apart from his permission. Satan is on a leash, and our God holds the reins. Now, that's good news to me. Does Satan have amazing power? Yes, he does. But our God has almighty power. We see that even when Job is afflicted by sores by Satan, God still maintains ultimate authority over his life. Satan cannot kill him without God's will. And ultimately, James 4 and verse 15 says, none of us will die unless it's God's will. None of us. Even Jeff... He doesn't get one more breath unless God wants him to have one. Even the pierce, no one in this room is going to live one more day outside of God's will. And that gives me comfort that God is 
Lord over both comfort and calamity. Is it not true, Job asked the Lord? Is it not true, Job asked, that the Lord both gives and he takes away? I don't think about that near often enough. Not the Lord gives and Satan takes away. But the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He also goes on to say, shall we receive good from God and not adversity? No, we've got to receive both because when we see suffering in the world like we do today, abroad or in our own homes, entire theologies are being formed right now that God's just doing the best that he can under the circumstances, that he doesn't have control over our suffering, and that's just not Bible. It's just not. So let me remind you that amidst such suffering in the world, it will not bring much comfort to those to consider that Satan's in control of anything. Because if the power of God is limited, then how in the world can any of his promises be counted on? The truth is they can't. Yes, there will always be mystery about how God's sovereignty intertwines with our own free will and responsibility. But the Bible's clear on this. God is in control. Satan is under his authority. It's all over Scripture. When Job's afflicted, God's in control. When Joseph is sold into slavery, God's in control. When evil kings are ruling in Israel's history, and this one gets me, that they could have ruled for so long and been so bad and so mean, but when they're ruling, God is in control. When religious leaders and government officials sentence my Lord to death, God was still in control. When Christians are preaching the gospel to all the world and are beheaded, and we see it on television, God is still in control. And the book of Revelation says, finally, when the cosmic battle of all battles ends and the souls of men are, are, are finally fought over and done, when the dust settles, our God is in control. Now and forever. Satan is subordinate to God on every page of history, including the refugee crisis that surrounds us today. Number two, God oversees the movement of all peoples. That's significant for us to consider right now in regards to this. God oversees the movements of all peoples. Again, here's what Paul says in Acts 17. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marks out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that those who seek him might perhaps reach out for him and find him. There's no way you can spend much time in any of the Old Testament and not see that God is in control of moving entire people groups around the globe. He both brings them to power and then he also brings them to their demise. Remember, at his appointed time, he leads Israel into Egypt. At his appointed time, he leads them out. At God's appointed time, he orchestrates the exile from Jerusalem and sends them away. And at God's appointed time, he brings them back and redeems them. When we get to the New Testament writings, we see that God uses suffering to initiate a mass movement of the early church. It's how he launched their their movement out from Jerusalem. Remember the stoning of Stephen? It was the spark. It was the launching pad for how the church went global from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God used suffering to do that. And so when we look at the migration of millions of people, that due to a multiplicity of a lot of reasons, 
Church, we've got to consider that all of this ultimately is occurring under the governance of our God. And Acts 17 says that God is doing it for a reason. And you know what the reason is? Let me highlight that. So that they would seek him. And perhaps reach out and find him. That's why. God aims to be sought. God aims to be found. God aims to be known. God aims to be enjoyed by all the peoples of the world. And he oversees their travels towards that end. Dr. Platt says, in his goodness, God turns even tragedy of forced migration into the triumph of future salvation. I like that. And this sovereign goodness of God leads us to a third truth. He commands for his church to provide for his people. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, here's what the scripture says. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everybody, but especially to those of the household of faith. Paul's not saying we shouldn't care for all people. Do good to everybody, he says, but don't miss the priority of that provision. Towards those who profess Jesus as Lord, towards those men and women that God calls his own, towards those of the church of Jesus Christ, his body, his bride. One of the things I'm enjoying about being married to that little lady over there for 34 years is the interesting phenomenon of how uncanny it is that at least on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis, I'll ask her a question and she'll say, I was just going to ask you that question. Or I'll make a comment. She said, I was just going to say that. Now, I got to imagine when you get to 75 years of marriage, you don't have to say anything. You just think it and they go. (laughs) It just gets quieter at 75 years of marriage. Hallelujah. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Isn't that uncanny? And it's not because Gail and I put a, a name on a piece of paper called a wedding license. It's because we have a covenant, a covenant, till death do us part covenant, that nothing is going to separate his covenant. And through that, God's making us one. And so she is unique among all women to me. She always tells me I'm unique among all men to her, I guarantee you. But it's because we're, we're one. <laughs> and God says, that ain't nothing compared to Jesus and his bride, you, the church. When you hurt, he hurts. When you rejoice, he rejoices. Because this isn't about some name on a piece of paper. You're written on his heart. You're written on his heart. Jesus cries out to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul ain't even met Jesus yet. But the implication is is deep and it's real. When you persecute the church, Saul, you're persecuting me. And so in Matthew chapter 25, as Braden read a few moments ago, God makes the point, when you're feeding hungry people, you're feeding me. When you're you're visiting people who, who can't get out, who are oppressed and stuck, you're you're visiting me. And I want you to see this, and I didn't include it in the scripture reading a while ago, and I'm really, I really went, uh, I should have done that. Because in the last part of that verse, he's alluding not just to anybody who's hungry or just anybody who's being fed or anybody who needs to be visited. He says, you've done it to me when you've done it to these brothers and sisters of mine. 
these brothers and sisters of mine. When you've done it to them, you've done it to me. Needy members of the family of God, needy members of the household of faith, needy members of the body of Christ. Again, not to the exclusion of anyone outside of our family. No way. Because we love all of our neighbors as ourselves, the scripture challenges us to do. Including, Jesus says, listen to me, enemies. But let us do good to everyone, the scripture says here. But with special attention and special effort and special regard for those at the household of faith. Now here's where the implications come from that. Certainly. If there's anyone in these crisis situations that we're hearing about on the news that deserve our attention and help, certainly it's those brothers and sisters over there and wanting maybe to come here who are a part of the Christian family of believers. That's at minimum. To care for those displaced in crisis because such care is not only right, you're reading it, it's commanded. Truth number four. God seeks, shelters, serves, and showers the refugee with grace. And he demonstrates this amazingly, not with just a verse, not with a chapter like we looked at last week, but listen to me, with an entire book in the Bible, the book of Ruth. What a story. Ahimelech has a wife by the name of Naomi. They have two sons, and they're driven from their homeland due to famine, and they migrate to a place called Moab. Just trying to feed his family is all Ahimelech's trying to do. And he finds himself in a foreign land amongst foreign people trying to do that. A people who shamefully begin when Lot has an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. And generations later, Moabite women seduce Israelite men into sexual immorality. And hear this number, 24,000 in the nation die. 24,000 men gone. And God sends a message loud and clear, don't go near Moabite women. They weren't even allowed in the Lord's assembly for ten generations following that event. But Ahimelech's boys marry, you guessed it, Moabite women. And the father and the two sons die. So Naomi's left with two Moabite daughter-in-laws. She returns to Bethlehem and begs them to go back to Moab. And one of them says, I will. And the other one, Ruth, says, no, where you go, I go. Your people are my people, and your God will be my God. And so this Moabite woman soon finds herself in an Israelite town, desperate for food and protection from anybody who would care. Sound vaguely familiar? Inner Boaz. He's the Lord of the harvest. He sees her working in his field one day, and upon seeing this woman is told she's a Moabite woman. What next? Well, instead of kicking her out of this field, he seeks her out. And he goes to her, and he greets her, and he shelters her from harm, and he promises safety to her. And then he does the unthinkable. He stoops to serve her. He invites this Moabite woman to his table where she enjoys a nice meal of roasted grain with him. And then this leads to a showering of grace and he gives her 30 to 40 pounds of roasted grain to take back to her camp, all of which was worth a half month's wages. And it gets better. 
This sets the stage for a Nicholas Sparks romance of redemption that follows, where Boaz eventually takes Ruth as his wife. Together they have a child whose family line will one day lead to the birth of none other than the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ our Savior. Question, how in the world do we have a book in our Bible named after a Moabite woman refugee? And at least one of the answers to that question is this. Is that we have a God who wants us to know how much he cares for the outcast. How much he cares for the oppressed. How much he cares for the stranger and the refugee. It is one of the key phrases in the entire book. Boaz says to Ruth, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. There's a safe place for the refugee under the wings of God. Jeff read one of the scriptures that kind of underscore that also earlier in the service. Boaz is more than just some decent guy in the story. Hear that, church. He's more than just some decent guy. He's a mirror of God. Boaz is the agent that God uses to show how he seeks out the oppressed, how God shelters them from his wings, how God serves the outcast at his table, how our God showers the needs of his people with his grace, how ultimately God is faithful to care for the forbidden and the foreigner. And it is his spirit that this year we as a church have invited to make room in us and to fill us. What a redeemer. And if he's reflected in us and through us, what a redeeming people, right? Well, those are the four truths that I I invite all of us to consider and to try and determine how those of us wearing his name choose to use his time, his resources for his glory. Now, let me share with you what may be four action points. Here's the first. Please, let's speak the gospel clearly. That's not something new. We've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks, haven't we? That part of this being filled with the Spirit has to mean that that like the one who came embodying the Spirit himself first to seek and save the lost, that's a natural part of who we are. It's a natural expectation of how we move and work in this world. It's not just a cute little song we're teaching our children to sing. No, we're starting in an early to say, no, you're the light to go into a dark world. And yes, we walk light, but we talk it. We talk it. So please, speak the gospel clearly to any refugee, to anyone who's oppressed that you come in contact with. The great news that God loves Muslim people, that's not a secret. He loves them so much that he would temporarily orchestrate the loss of all that they have known or will know so that they might have a chance to know him. That's why this movement, so that someone might reach out and actually find him who who was in a situation literally by the masses, it might never have happened any other way. And if anyone can identify with the refugee, it's God through Jesus Christ. Have you thought about this? Having left all that was familiar to him, he enters this foreign land called earth, this strange, dangerous land called earth. 
And if his birth into this world isn't empathy enough, soon enough after his birth, he's forced to leave the comfort of even the surrounding country of his birthplace because there's this madman by the name of Herod who wants to see the child dead. Church, let us never forget. Jesus is a refugee. He's not detached from us. He's not unfamiliar with the pain that we experience as refugees ourselves. He's walked in our shoes. He knows the suffering. He's not left us to fend for ourselves in a world who is probably more bothered by the outcasts than they are embraceive. The Son of God came to us as a refugee. That rocked me. And he's conquered as a refugee. And he took upon himself the greatest source of suffering any of us will ever know, sin. He took it on himself. All the injustice of it, all the shame of it, he took upon himself. But God did not let suffering and shame have the last word. No, he breathes into him new life and brings him out of the tomb so that we could have life. You don't sit here if this refugee isn't rescued by God while he's in a foreign place. This is the greatest news anybody can hear. (laughs) And all refugees need to hear it at least once. But they won't hear it unless we go to church. And maybe unless we welcome them to come. Do we realize the unprecedented opportunities that right now we have that may not ever come again in quite the same way to speak into the lives of a huge monolith of a people group? Maybe you saw the emails that were being shot to my email box a couple of years back. But they basically said this, that over the last couple of years, just sheer by birth numbers, the Muslim religion has become a dominant religion in our world. And here's why, simply because they're having five to seven children in each of their Muslim families. And in America and in Europe, we're having 2.1% I don't know where they get the point one or point two, but it's right in there. And so here's what this email was saying. Do you recognize this danger? Do you recognize this? That by the year 2020, that literally the Muslim will dominate the world, the Muslim religion will dominate our world simply through births, not bullets, just births. Well, I remember reading that and going, oh, we're doomed. We're doomed. Anybody here seen that email? Did I just get the only copy? No. Several of you saw the copy. And it didn't it kind of make you go, oh. Gail, we got to have more babies. No, she wasn't going for that one. Could it be? Could it just be that maybe, just maybe we have the opportunity of all opportunities because that people group now has been thrown out of their homes and they have the opportunity for those of us in Christ to embrace them, not shun them? And I'm just thinking, maybe it's just me, but they might hear Jesus better over a table in security than in some place that's adversarial. And we're debating. Just thinking. Doors are open around the world in the Middle East and European countries. Instead of seeing threat, church, I'm hoping we'll see opportunity. We dare not spend all of our time sitting back and just debating if a few of them come over to us. Church, it is time for a number of us to go to them. To go and hear their stories and to heal their wounds and to tell them the story of how 
This refugee Jesus saved us and healed us. That message is vitally important. There's food and water we can give them and shelter we can give them. The gospel of Jesus is always the greatest need of anyone in our world. Amen? Are there risks? You bet. <laughs> as far as my reading of the story, I, I just don't see the movement of the gospel into the world without it. Risks and danger. And you know the only place where you don't find risk and danger? Let me tell you. In American Christianity. In American Christianity, that's what you've been raised on and that's what I've been raised on. A risk-free, danger-free faith. That's blasphemous almost. It's certainly not biblical. If anybody comes to me, anybody, not just the mature. No, we're talking about if you're looking at kicking some tires and starting this thing. If anybody would come to me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and be willing to die. what the refugee Jesus said. In Christ, self is no longer God. Our safety is no longer our concern. No, we go and we preach the gospel knowing that others' lives depend on it and believing that ours is worth it if we have to give it up. Brother, could it be that God is orchestrating this massive movement of people so that you, who have heard the story of Jesus 10,000 times, might be the one to help someone hear it for the first time. Number two, let's pray earnestly. Can I just remind you that amazingly this God who reigns sovereignly has made prayer a powerful means by which we actually participate in the accomplishment of his purposes in the world? You remember Exodus chapter 32? Probably one of the most famous passages of prayer in the entire Bible. Moses comes down from the mountain, and he's got the law, and he's just ready to, he's just giddy to share this with his, his people. And there they are, worshiping that stupid golden calf. And God says, move out of the way, it's over. And you know what Moses could have said? You're right, they made their bed, let them die in it. They made their bed, let them die in it. Or... You know, you're sovereign, you're just going to do what you want anyways. That's not what Moses does. No, he intercedes for those damnable people. Hoping that God will pour out his grace on them. And you know what? Because of his prayer, God repented the scripture. So God changes his mind. He alters the plan. And he doesn't wipe them out. That lets me know that my prayers have power, your prayers have power to actually bring about the purposes of God. Moses had such faith in God's redeeming plan to bring about a people for himself that he prayed, Lord, remember that plan you've got? It's your plan. I'm just reminding you of it. Let's keep that one going. Now, I don't understand all the idiosyncrasies of that, but it, it is a testimony and a witness that I want you to be reminded of this morning. Your prayers matter, church. They matter. And so when you are standing before the God over everything, in your quiet time or with your kids around the bed or, or around the, the, the meal table, would you please remember these faceless refugees and ask God, God, if this is the time, this is the time where, where the Muslim religion takes a turn for the better and that false 
prophet they've been following now is replaced with the true, the one true Savior, please help us to be a part of making that happen in any way that we can. I'm hoping we can be a church who can pray that prayer. Let's pray earnestly, but number three, let's, let's act justly. What does the Lord require, Micah asks, and the answer is not a debate, but do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. The church of Jesus Christ could use a big dose of humility when it comes to people who don't have it straight theologically. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, you tithe mint, you tithe dill and cumin, spices, but neglect the weightier matter of the law, justice and mercy and walking humbly with God. How dare you? No, how dare me? And it's so easy for this preacher of yours to get caught up in Bible minutia that I, I absolutely missed ministry opportunities that are dropped in my lap. It happened Tuesday. You've got to go fast with this because we've got to wrap this up. <laughs> A guy comes and, and plants his tent right here on our property because he's, he's trying to reconnect with his girlfriend. Who's, they've had a child together, and, and he just has no place to turn. Can, we just, can I just park my tent on your property? And he does, and... I run into him on Tuesday, rest right before our elders meeting. And man, I'm prepping for some important stuff that we're going to share there. And, and I go and find him and I say, listen, I, there's no way in the world that I can, I can spend time and just I can give you me. But if you'll wait till 2 o'clock when we're done with this meeting, I, I would love to hear your story, buy you lunch. He said, oh, man, I'm tired. I just, I just need a nap. I said, right, well, right there is a chapel. And, and, and you just go in there, you just lay out, you just chill, and you get some sleep. And even walking away, I'm going... Am I being that priest? Am I being that Levite who's on the way to his important meeting and I'm, I'm leaving the guy in the ditch? In the ditch. Well, I went to my meeting. And I come back out and I can't find him. I don't see the guy for two or three days. Danelle brings him breakfast one morning. He's not down there in the tent. Well, come to find out it was because he was working. He was working. I did finally run into him yesterday morning. I had to finish up this lesson. As you could tell, this is not just your everyday Sunday morning lesson. A little intense here. You better say the right things because you may hear about this. And so I'm, I'm gathering up my stuff. I come in, I see him and another guy over there kind of milling around. And I, I gather my stuff and I'm, I'm driving out to go hide someplace so I can work, all right? The Spirit wouldn't let me get past the other driveway. And I pulled in and... The rest is between me and God. But I did then what I should have done the very first time that I met this young man. I'm telling you that story to say, me too. Me too. Let's act justly. Let's love sacrificially, okay? We all know the story of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> when the man who loved his neighbor did the amazing to let some stranger know that he loved him. He took him and he cared for him. He provided for him. He paid for his present needs. He paid for his future needs without hesitation, without question. And I was just wondering, speaking of questions, have you ever done that for somebody? Have you ever seen somebody in need and cared for them to that degree?
sacrificing for everything they needed. I'm guessing that most likely, knowing you like I do, everyone in this room has. And that someone is ourselves. Man, I don't know about you, but whenever this person's hurt, when this person's in the debt, it gets all the attention to me. Everything else gets pushed to the side, and, and I need to be taken care of. Somebody help me. Somebody get me to a doctor. Somebody clothe me. Some, whatever. I, please, someone's going to help me now. And I make sure that it gets done. When we've not been well, when we've not had what we thought we needed, we'll do whatever it takes to love ourselves sacrificially. And here's what Jesus says. Would you mind doing that for your enemy? I got a long ways to go. I got another, a couple more rooms for the Spirit to, to open the doors to to get there. Which leads us to number five. Let's hope confidently. Because, folks, one day these tragedies, these crises, this ugly, this meanness, this war, listen to me clearly, is done. <laughs> it's done. There's coming a day when war and hurricanes and tornadoes that wreck our lives are going to wreck us no more. And we believe in confident hope. Jesus will bring that. He will bring that. Right now, at this moment, every follower of Christ that exists finds him or herself in a foreign land, thus says 1 Peter, thus says the book of Hebrews, that we're sojourners, that we're exiles looking for a better country. That we're all seeking a homeland, a city that is to come. It's not now. And we migrants here are a collective, multicultural group of refugees of an extraordinary kingdom. And until it comes with our Savior on His white horse, we will work. And we will wait as best as we can. Where on that day we will gather with a multitude that no one can number. From every tribe. From every people. And from every nation. And we will together give him all the glory that our great God is due. Amen. Lord Jesus, we ask you to please help us. Help us, please. You know these are truths that are hard for us to hear and even harder to actually apply. And so I'm, I'm asking through the power of your spirit in each unique person, in each unique family, will you help us? To do that we don't know what's next there are so many crises that come at us on a daily basis it seems we don't know which one to pick to be involved with so would you start there and if there's some way somehow we can have an involvement in this incredible refugee crisis in the Muslim nation would you please help us to sense your leading and to act and where we can do that together as a family would you show us that too because we want to say thank you for rescuing us, for giving us a place of safety and security and wholeness and calling us yours. Help us to do the same. In Jesus' name, and everyone said. Tuesday, you're going to have at least three specific ways in which a group of us are researching how we as a church can be involved in this crisis. Some of you are already working in that. 
I know a couple already. They're some of the ones that I've talked to because I said, I know you've got a heart for this. It's, mine's been dull. Help me with how we can actually make a difference in some refugees' lives. And we're going to have those in the KC notes on Tuesday. We're out of time and I couldn't do it here. And so please remember that. But this morning, can I say this? If you're here and you feel like you're your own refugee, even amongst these people who are definitely in a safe place where we can gather and do something like this, who's, who are going to eat and who are going to have cars that will take them home and clothes that they, and, and homes. If you're here this morning and you're feeling like a refugee because of something Satan has tried to pull off in your life, could we put our arms around you and just let you know that you're not and do what we can to help you? We'll do our best not to run by that and just give you lip service or prayer service. We'll do our best to try to help you. We're going to have elders at the back and here at the front. And if this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, I'm going to be right down here. And we'll see you baptized into him right now today. Let's stand. Let's praise him, church.